All right, welcome back to the Lindroth Hockey Podcast. We are in partnership with the Black and Gold Hockey Productions. You're here with co-host, father and son duo, Andrew and Jim Lindroth. Dad, how are you doing today? Doing great, Andrew. Can't wait to get to this guest. Uh, I don't want to make him feel older, uh, but he's an old-time player. My, actually, a little before my generation, but yep. I, I watched him play uh, uh, and, and fight with Philadelphia yep. and a little bit with Hartford early on. So get right into this guest because, boy, what a career he still has. Yeah, so today we, we have with this Don Nackbar with us. So this introduction could have been a couple pages long, given the amazing career both playing and coaching Don has had. But at least a quick overview during his playing career. After being a standout in junior hockey at a young age, he was later drafted in the third round of the 1979 draft by the Hartford Whalers. He later got the call up to the National Hockey League during the 1980-1981 season and he played between the AHL and NHL for the Hartford Whalers, Edmonton Oilers, and Philadelphia Flyer organizations from 1980 until 1990 and then finished his last few seasons of his playing career overseas in Austria. After retiring in 1994, Don went on to begin his legendary coaching career for the Seattle Thunderbirds of the WHL in 1994 and did so for six years. From there, he served other coaching jobs, such as an assistant coach for Philly's uh, AHL team, the Philadelphia Phantoms, for two years and afterwards served as a head coach for the Tri-City Americans of the WHL from 03 to 09. He then served as a head coach from Binghamton Senators and AHL and then also began his legendary coaching run with the Spokane Chiefs of the WHL from 2010 2017. Most notably, though, most people would recognize Don from his coaching stuff. Um, if you watch the NHL, as he did serve as the assistant coach for the LA Kings during the 17, 18, and 18, 19 season. And then he later continued to coach different teams in different leagues. And it brings us to today as he is a current assistant coach for the Stockton Heat of the AHL. I'm sure Don is tired Jeez. of hearing my voice, but what a hell Don, of an intro. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today, Don. Just have him uh, do this again. You can record it. And when you do your uh, autobiography someday, he, that's it. Yeah. There you go. That's the, I've uh, got it written for you. That's the (laughs) audio book. Yeah. I feel like I'm somebody. That was a great job. Great job, Andrew. Thank you. So Don, hell of a playing career, obviously hell of a coaching career so far. Um, But we want to spend obviously the first half going over uh, your playing career and then later on go over your coaching career. So let's take it back to your teenage days. You're tearing it up in the uh, junior leagues before um, getting to your draft story. So give us some insight during those early junior days. And at what point were you inspired to want to pursue hockey professionally? Well, it's funny when I, uh, this is back in the seventies growing up um, to play in Western Canada, uh, especially in the uh, mid seventies to get to the national hockey league. Most guys were coming out of major junior. Uh, so my path was, um, when I was in midget, I was offered college scholarships. And at the same time, I was, uh, my, uh, major junior rights were owned by the Calgary Centennials. And, uh, in those days, they, they put you on a list. They didn't, uh, uh, have a draft. So the first team that saw you put you on a player list, a hundred, hundred man roster. And if you went on that roster, you were owned by that team. So I was owned by the Calgary Centennials to make a long story short, um, had conversations with my mother and father about uh, where I wanted to play hockey. And uh, I think deep in their hearts, they wanted me to go to college, but I wanted to play in the national hockey league. So I thought the best path for me was the Western hockey league. And at that time it was called the Western Canada hockey league. So I took, I rolled the dice and took my chances with the Calgary Centennials. Uh, As a 17 year old Calgary sent me to their farm team in the BC junior, which was the merit Centennials. 
And the following year, I went back to Calgary for camp and the team was bought by a, a new owner and moved the club to Billings, Montana, became the Billings Bighorns. I made the team and, uh, and then it's water under the bridge. I played two years. Uh, the league name changed to the Western, uh, from the Western Canada Hockey League to the Western Hockey League. Uh, I believe there was 12 teams in the league. And at that, during those days, 12 teams, you do the math. Uh, you had to be a pretty good player to make one of those teams simply because there, there weren't a lot of teams. And the pool uh, was from British Columbia out to uh, the borders of Manitoba, Ontario. And then uh, you had the U.S. states, the Western U.S. states. So there was a, a big pool of players to draw from. Um, and I was really fortunate when I went to Billings, uh, I had a really good coach. His name was Dave King. Kinger went on to uh, coach the Canadian Olympic team and was at a few Olympics. He coached the Calgary Flames, the Montreal Canadiens, the Arizona Coyotes, but he was an excellent mentor for young guys. And from our team, we probably had four or five guys, uh, my draft year that went on to play in the National Hockey League. One, of course, was our goalie, Andy Moog. And um, we actually had another goalie uh, named Mike Vernon, who the team uh, we went on to Calgary and win a Stanley Cup there, but uh, both guys were National Hockey League goaltenders. And, you know, I attribute that to really good coaching in junior. Uh, he was a, an excellent mentor as far as the way I had to play. I was a goal scorer coming out of Bantams and Midgets. Uh, I put up 100 goals uh, throughout my minor hockey career in Pee Wee's, Bantams and Midgets. And when I got to major junior, I continued to score, but he saw something in me as a coach that my skating wasn't, uh, you know, uh, at a top level. And then I was going to have to do other things. I was a big guy, I was 6'3", and he really instilled in me about competing and battling. And when I got to Hartford, I was drafted in the third round, 60th overall. Um, the Hartford Whalers had three, four centers that were highly skilled and smaller guys. So it didn't take a rocket scientist for me to figure out I could fit in uh, in a third or fourth line role playing a physical role. And I attribute uh, that to my junior hockey coach who instilled not just the skill part, but the compete part. So you tear it up in Billings, uh, you know, two seasons. I'm looking at stats. It's 87 goals, 176 points and 350 penalty minutes. So that's a lot of ice time. Uh, you're just tearing it up. Uh, so, I mean, good for you. Uh, you establish yourself as a goal scorer, and also you can uh, certainly do the physical play. We're interested. Um, I think you're the same year Brian Prop in the draft, 79. We, uh, when we had Proper on a year ago, he said he didn't know that he was drafted until his dad told him the next day on the farm in Saskatchewan. So today, you know, you go to Montreal or wherever, it's a big shame. How did you know about your draft? What's your draft story? Yeah, that's a funny one because like you just said, they, all the teams gather in one big hockey building it might be uh, in this, so to speak, the uh, LA uh, Staples Center. And it's a date in uh, June that everybody comes together in 79 it was done by a conference call. I believe all the teams are on a conference call or in Montreal, but just the teams, no players, no parents, no agents. And we all sat at home and waited for the phone to ring. And it was nerve wracking because we all knew it started at a certain time, might've been 8 a.m. Eastern time. I was in the Pacific time district. So I was up early waiting to hear my name and it was a long, long wait. 
And I think it was about three or four hours into the uh, draft, I get a call. And it was the uh, general manager of the Hartford Whalers. It was Jack Kelly called me, telling me he had drafted me. My agent had called shortly before that. And uh, from that point forward, it was me calling all my friends and getting a party together. And we went out that night, probably had about 13, 14 of my best and closest friends. We went out and, uh, you know, tore the town apart. It was a big moment because in Canada, and when your dream is to play in the National Hockey League, the first step is getting drafted. And that happened for me. So you get drafted, you sign your contract. Uh, I believe you spend the first year in, in their AHL team. What's it like going from juniors to now you're playing the man's game? You know, these guys are doing it for a living. They got families. What adjustment did you have to make or not make to go from that junior to man's game? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I was 19 when I went to the Hartford Whalers and, uh, for me, this is a, a, it was an unbelievable moment. We had rookie camp. Ray Allison was our first round pick. Stewart's Ray was a right winger. Stuart Smith was a defenseman from Peterborough. He, he was a second rounder and I was a center, uh, a third rounder. And we had gone through rookie camp. And at the end of rookie camp, uh, we were told to meet in a banquet room in Hartford in our hotel and uh, we were gonna change rooms for main camp. So we were told to bring our bags uh, with us to that meeting. And Jack Kelly, the manager went up to the podium and introduced himself and, uh, and welcomed everybody to camp. Then he read out the rooming list. And the first guy's name that he wrote or uh, read out was uh, Ray Allison, you're going with Gordy Howe. The second guy he read was Stuart Smith. You're going with Ricky Lee, who was our captain of our team and defenseman. So I was putting two and two together that uh, Ray Allison was a right winger. He's going with Gordy. He's a right winger. Stuart Smith is a defenseman. He's going with Ricky Lee. And then they read out the third name, Don Nakbar. You're with Dave Keon. And my heart just started racing because my background in hockey is I was a Toronto Maple Leaf fan growing up. We only had two channels in British Columbia in the 60s and early 70s before the Vancouver Canucks came in the league. So the, the Toronto Maple Leafs were my team and Dave Keon was my idol. I wore 14 from the time I was five years old. I went right through major junior. I wore 14 in uh, Billings. Um, I even wrote Keon on my sticks when I was a kid, but now I'm rooming with him and he ended up being my roommate for two years. So it's quite a story, but now I've kind of got off track. I forgot the question. <laughs> no, you, no, you answered it. It was, it was, you know, the transition, you know. From... Oh yeah. Okay. So continue along the transition. So uh, during that training camp, um, I played some exhibition games. Uh, my very first exhibition game was in Atlanta, was actually in Houston, Texas. And we played the Atlanta flames and uh, I got put on a line with Gordy. And um, I actually got a goal that night, uh, got named a star. So I had a, I thought, man, this league's really easy. Uh, <laughs> it didn't turn out to be that easy. It was, a, it was a really tough league to break into. Just a fond memory I got. One of my very first games uh, in the Montreal form was early in the season. And in those days, when you came on the ice, you warmed up, you skated around the whole ice surface. So both teams did. And as I was skating around the ice, Guy Lafleur passed me, and I, I did one of these ones. Whoa! There goes Lafleur, and and there goes Robinson, and it was it hit me, I, I, the, how good those players were, how fast the game was, and I and it made a quick realization that 
my game has to change because these guys can all skate and they're all highly skilled. So I've got to be something different. And I've, and at the end of the day, that was a real eye opener for me, but it was a starstruck moment. Um, these are guys I watch on TV every day and now I'm out on the ice surface with them. So it was, uh, it was quite a moment. So as a, Young hockey fan uh, living in the new hockey era, trying to look back at old school hockey like my father has tried to raise me on. How, how truly crazy was the AHL or even the, especially the WHL as well back during your time? I mean, was it brawls on the ice all the time still during that time? What, what was it like for you? Well, uh, to be honest with you, uh, um, the game's obviously changed since the time that I played. Um, that year, uh, 79, 80, I broke my wrist and I was, uh, put in a cast. I think it was the, they call it the navicular bone, which is a scaphoid. And today you screw that bone together because there's a short uh, blood supply that goes into that area. So it's a, a long process for that bone to heal. Uh, our doctors in Hartford decided to put a cast on me. And, um, so I missed, uh, from probably early October, uh, and, and practiced every day without touching a hockey stick with a cast on my wrist up until February. And I played, I think, 29 games in the American Hockey League. I was in Springfield that year. And in Springfield, the Hartford Whalers were playing out of their building because the Hartford uh, Civic Center roof had collapsed a year before and they were rebuilding the building. So that first initial year in the National Hockey League, 79-80, the Whalers were in Springfield. So both the Whalers and the Springfield Indians, their farm club, were both stationed or situated in Springfield. But um, just the, learning the ropes in the American Hockey League, there was a fine line between the players that played in the, in the American Hockey League and the National Hockey League. And the guys were big and strong, and it was a big, huge adjustment for me coming out of junior. And it wasn't the skill side. It was the physical side, how competitive it was. When you lost a puck, how hard guys backchecked, and uh, just how heavy the, the game was in corners and backing down, like uh, guys challenge you. Even the skill guys, they had that compete to them where they challenged you. But you know, my very first fight in the national in pro hockey was a guy named Jules Billado. And uh, he got mad at me and he was a big, tough guy, he played for Syracuse. I had a cast on and I wasn't backing down. I was throwing punches with a cast on and, uh, but it was welcome to pro hockey, you know? So at the end of the day, it was a quick transition for me. Those games that I played in the American hockey league got me ready for the national hockey the following year. And, you know, I think it's the same as what I'm coaching today. Um, coaching in the American Hockey League for these young guys, that's probably their biggest step is it's not always about the skill. It's about how hard you compete. It's those moments in the corner. It's getting to the net and you got to play against bigger guys because the guys in pro are much bigger than the, uh, the junior hockey players. There's a lot of guys in junior that are big, but I think the, the smaller guys, they learn how to compete against those big guys and just off the cuff. I've had some small guys that I coached in junior that, um, were really, really competitive guys. Two guys off the top of my head. One would be uh, Tyler Johnson, who played in Tampa and is in Chicago now. And uh, the other's uh, Kyler Yamamoto, two small guys. But, you know, they went against guys that were 6'4", six, 6'5", six, and didn't back down. And uh, that's why they're playing the National Hockey League today. But we all had to learn that. Yeah. When did the uh, role of, of tough guy come in for you? Because you certainly, uh, I mean, 
all you got to do is, is look at your fight card, both in the AHL and the NHL. And I mean, you fought every tough guy that there was. When did that role happen? Did it morph? Were you assigned to it, especially in the 80s where it was still kind of rough and tumble hockey? Well, I don't, you know, when I was in Hartford, I was on a line with Nick Fatio and Ray Neufeld. I don't think the coach had to tell me what my role was when I was playing alongside guys that were big physical and they weren't going to back down. You know, we were asked to play uh, a physical game. Uh, I don't ever recall being asked to fight. Um, so to speak, uh, Don Blackburn was a good coach when I had him my first year and I played for Larry Plo. Uh, but at the end of the day, we knew our roles. We were professional hockey players. Uh, the guys ahead of me in the middle position center, we're skilled guys and, uh, you know, to be a good team, everybody's got a certain type of style that they have to bring to the table. And we didn't need another skilled guy down the middle. And I knew that that was my ticket to play uh, simply because of my skating. And, you know, I was, I was trained and mentored by a, a coach and junior that prepared me for those moments. Uh, I got to the national hockey league. I knew I wasn't going to be a power play guy, uh, that was a role that I felt comfortable in. And then I got better as it went on over the time, over the, the experience that I put in, uh, just dropping the gloves and getting in those situations. So just to follow up on this, and I know Andrew, Andrew loves the, 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 the toughness of, of the eighties, but I'll ask this. So, you know, just looking up some of the old fight cards and believe, well, you probably know this. Uh, a lot of people keep records of this stuff. Yeah. So, you know, things against Nyland, uh, Basil McRae, Todd Gill, Zalapke. I mean, you know, he, I mean, and there's plenty there on YouTube for our listeners to go if they're not familiar with that, just how you could throw them there. So you're playing with these tough guys. What's your strategy back then? I mean, again, this isn't uh, middleweight or lightweight guys. These are heavyweights. So, if tempers flare or if they say you want to go or if it just happens spontaneously, what's your strategy once those gloves are dropped? Did you have a strategy or was? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's like anything that uh, if you want to be good at it, you have to analyze it. And I say that to our players today. If they want to learn how to score, they can't just go into uh, practices and hit the end wall. They've got to practice their, their shot. They've got to practice getting into certain areas. They've got to practice their release and at the end of the day, watch themselves. So, um, you know, I analyzed uh, tough guys on the other team, whether it was through press notes, who had the most penalty minutes. We watched videotape on those players, if they were lefties, if they are righties, if they, where they grabbed, where they, uh, if they locked you out, if they threw with both hands. So we had a pretty good uh, idea of who you're getting in a fight with, uh, if, if it came about just, it wasn't an easy job. I can tell you that. I mean, and again, I don't uh, remember anybody ever saying you have to go fight this guy. I, I give you an example. You know, we were, uh, I was with the Flyers and I was playing in Hershey at the time and I got called up. And uh, if, if you knew the reasons why I got called up, Dave Brown was uh, injured. Their next tough guy, Daryl Stanley was sick. Um, we had guys that were in those roles that weren't in the lineup. So I got called up. I, I didn't need to be told what my role was. So I go into New York, I get in a fight with Chris Nyland right away. So at the end of the day, um, you're a professional athlete. You know what your job is. Absolutely. You know, and even that Nyland fight, if it's the fight that that's, uh, you could see on YouTube, 
you go down and I don't know if you go down because you got hit, but you go down, but you're going down, you're still swinging, you're on the ground, you're still swinging at Chris Nyland. That's uh, pretty impressive. Well, yeah, sure, I'm sure you had to. <laughs> I remember that fight. You know, I think I stepped on a stick, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> what like. And you know what? I learned a lot from Chris Nyland. I was a young guy in Hartford first year. It was late in the season. And uh, Jordy Douglas was fighting, I want to say Mario Trombley. And it, and it might have been somebody else, but it was right behind the net. And everybody was kind of standing there watching. And I was watching these two guys roll around on the ice and the linesman try to break it up. And all of a sudden from my side, I got pushed up onto the net. Somebody pushed me up onto the net. And as my elbows were up on the net, so to, so to speak, I was trying to bounce myself, come off the net. I got sucker punched. And I got sucker punched by Chris Nyland. And uh, he broke my nose and I was bleeding like a stuffed pig. And next thing you know, uh, he's on my back on the ice and the lines are getting him off. I'm up against the glass and I'm gushing. And I'll never forget that moment. I was so mad at myself for letting my guard down. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, in junior, uh, it, was, it was a tough environment, but you were more more uh, gladiator type where you backed off and you squared up. In that moment, I got suckered. I never forgot that because I, I wasn't that kind of guy. And uh, But that's not every player on the ice. Right. So at the end of the day, uh, I was more aware of what was going on around me as a player. And it woke me up, so to speak, that uh, you, you can't trust the other guys on the other team because they're all trying to win. And at the end of the day, I don't blame him. He's, he was trying to win, but that's that was the environment at that time. And, and so, it, it really taught me something. Yeah, so how did you deal with the psychopath rats like Chris Nyland from back in the day that, I mean, it's the most unpredictable person I've ever seen. I mean, how, how do you deal with that? He's on the ice, you have to constantly watch him. Is it you have to always take him off the ice when you see him? That's what I would try and do. So what what was the strategy when you have to go against somebody that like that? Well, give him respect because he earned it. Um, he was a tough guy. He, uh, he could throw with both hands. He was a grappler. He, uh, he went um, into fights. It wasn't about a one-punch knockout. He, he could go for, for a minute, minute and a half. And I watched him do that against one, you know, a guy that I would consider one of the top three in the National Hockey, Dave Brown. We had a brawl in Montreal in the pregame warm-ups, which I was involved in. And uh, I was in two or three fights in that brawl. And the next thing I know, I'm up against the glass with Larry Robinson. We ended up separating. And uh, I watched Nyland fight uh, Brownie. Uh, and Brownie had no jersey on. He had no uh, T-shirt or shoulder pads. He was bare-chested. And you guys have probably seen that. But uh, that was two warriors going at it. And it was there was nobody out there to break it up. But he hung in there. And I and, uh, got a lot of respect for that guy. He was tough. Yeah. So what what was your recollection? What was your recollection of that? So we've had on Shane Corson who instigated that whole thing. So we got Corson's uh, take on why he started that with the whole you know shooting the puck and everything. But uh, you're in the locker room. What take us from there? What's your recollection of that? Crazy. Do you lose your mind? Start throwing stuff? Well, you hear like yeah. What's going on? Yeah. Well, if you were there and followed the series. <clears throat> It started with uh, game one. We won game one and uh, we lost game two. We go back to Montreal. During the course of this, the, the press are watching the warm-ups. 
So we had shot a puck into their net at the end of warmups in game one. Apparently Montreal had done it in game two. And now it's the, the writers are starting to write about this. So it's going back and forth. The series was at, uh, I think, 3-2 heading back to Montreal. And uh, after, our, after we finished the warm-ups, Chico Rush turned the net around and put it up against the wall after Eddie. And Chico and Eddie were the last two guys on the ice. So Eddie, Eddie uh, shot a puck down into their net. Chico turned around our net. Montreal had left the ice in the Montreal Forum. And uh, if you remember the Montreal form behind their bench was uh, a curtain. So uh, during the game, they pull the curtain shut and then they would open it for the players to go back into their locker room. Well, their players had all left the ice. Our players are now leaving the ice. And, and this happens where the nets turned around. And as our guys left the ice, um, I believe it was Lemieux and, uh, and Corson came back onto the ice and I hear from our locker room, our trainers yelling, they're back on the ice. And Eddie and Chico flew back out there and confronted them. And then of course, all hell broke loose when uh, Eddie started throwing punches at Lemieux. Uh, next thing you know, uh, our players are filtering out of the locker room, their players are filtering out. And then one thing happened after another. And you know what, uh, I was involved in, of course, I have some regrets because the guy that um, that I end up fighting at the start was Larry Robinson. And, you know, I, I grew up idolizing Larry and it wasn't something that I'm proud of. But at the end of the day, I was heading towards uh, their tough guys, so to speak, or guys that would stir it up in my mind. And as I was heading in that direction, somebody reached out and grabbed me and spun me around. And I thought, oh, here we go. And as I turned around, it was Larry Robinson. My heart sank. I went, oh, no, it's Larry. <laughs> <laughs> so I said to Larry, Larry, you got to let me go. And uh, he says, no, you're not going anywhere. I said, Larry, you're going to let me go. He said, no, you're not going to let, I'm not letting you go. I said, Larry, let me go or I'm going to have to start throwing punches. And he says, well, you got to do whatever you got to do. And that's where it led to. But, you know, it wasn't much. It was, it was a, more of a wrestling match than anything. Um, there were stories that he broke my nose. That's not true. He never broke my nose. Chris Nyland did uh, years before that, but he didn't. And, you know, there was um, other situations on the ice where uh, Brown fought uh, with uh, Nyland. Uh, Daryl Stanley had fights. Uh, there was multiple uh, fights and, you know, it's, it's well documented. There's video on it. And at the end of this day, the stories have gotten taller and taller, uh, but at it was, it was mayhem for 20 minutes. I know that I was out there. I was under a dog pile. Um, after Larry and I had broken up, I got in another altercation. I believe it was with Corson. And I got uh, uh, clothesline from behind in the middle of the, the, so to speak, fight. Somebody grabbed me around the neck from behind and pulled me backwards. And everybody landed on top of me. I literally uh, had um, three or four guys I think Eddie jumped in on that hospital uh, to help out, get guys off of me. And while I was under the dog pile, I had skates all around me. My hands were on the ice out to the side because I was being pinned down. And I, all I could picture was the skates chopping my fingers off. But it was a scary moment. And, you know, that's what it was, uh, you know, the moments that I remember. Um, it, it got separated towards the... Uh, as everything died down, we, we went off the ice into the locker room. We all thought that there was going to be multiple ejections that night. 
and there wasn't. Um, the league ended up finding guys after the game. We had, uh, make a long story short, we won the hockey game. We uh, won the series, went on to play the Edmonton Oilers that year in the Stanley Cup. But uh, nobody got suspended in that game six, and everybody that was involved was out there playing, myself mm -hmm. included. Wow. So just while quickly we're on the topic of, of fighting still, especially as a current uh, coach, especially pro coach in the AHL, do you still think fighting has a place in hockey, in this new era of hockey now? And do you see – the number of fights rising or dropping or disappearing completely. Well, can, can we preface that with one thing? So, you know, us as, you know, the uh, potato chip couch fans here, it seems like the last, you know, 20 years, uh, at least 10 years, if not more in the NHL, uh, teams that make it to the cup, uh, they have that toughness and they take care of uh, all these other teams. They get beat up and it's, it's a war of attrition, but if you don't have the tough guys, you're not going to make it to the cup. So I want to preface it with that. Right. But uh, I guess Andrew's question is, uh, yeah, where do you see the, uh, the toughness in the game today? And, and what do you teach the young kids yeah. or the young pros? Well, you know what? It's a physical game. And when there's uh, physicality involved, uh, there's going to be confrontations. And those confrontations lead to heated uh, feelings. And whether you take your stick and crack a guy over the head, which I don't agree with, I, I don't like the use of sticks, uh, the cross checks that you see to the back of the head. It's no different than, you know, a, a good fight. So I'd be a real hypocrite if I said take it out of the game because of, um, you know, the role that I played. But um, I, I'm all for skill. I really am. And I've coached many, many skilled guys that, I had to instill take care of yourself because the refs uh, are on the ice. They miss a lot. They really do. And at the end of the day, if you can't take care of yourself, you'll be intimidated. So I, I just think that um, th there's a time and place for it. Um, whether you ban it totally is, you know, that's the direction we're going right now. But we certainly can't take the body checking out and the physicality out because that's what drew me to the sport. And I mean, uh, if I didn't like being physical, I would have gone into figure skating. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? That's why most hockey players love the game of hockey. It's because why do football players like football? Right. Uh, they, they couldn't play baseball, but they were good at that physical side. They're really competitive people. And I, I think even the skilled guys are competitive. And I played against those guys that were competitive. Even Gretz got in a fight. That's no, true. Well, and the, also another reason why I asked that question was, you know, I, I was wondering if there's going to be a domino effect in the league with other teams following the New York Rangers in suit due to the whole Tom Wilson incident. Obviously, you know, there's not that many heavyweights that could go against the Wilson and Reeves in the league right now. But I was just curious if you if when you had saw that happen and they signed Reeves and they get all these tough guys on the Rangers, if you were going to start to see that domino effect in the league, or do you think that that was kind of a, one and done emotional kind of reaction to the Panarin situation? Well, I consider myself a new school guy, but I still got a little bit of old school in me. I, I really believe when you got skilled guys around you that you got to take care of those guys so that they can be skilled. Because if, if you don't, uh, if you surround yourself with 20 skilled guys and it becomes a physical seven game series, like I've been through, whether it was in the American Hockey League in Hershey or whether it was in Philadelphia going to Stanley Cups, 
it can be a real grind on those skill guys and their game, their game can go downhill, so to speak. So to have those guys around that keep the peace and give them that freedom to play, I think it's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And I, I guess one day you'll see 20 skilled guys and uh, the game's going to, is moving towards that uh, uh, direction. But uh, today you still, uh, you still can have those guys around and don't get me wrong. The, the guys in today's game, they can all play. These guys that can uh, play the physical role and, and drop the gloves when need be. And the league's got rules now uh, as far as, as fighting goes. You can only have so many and you're suspended. Uh, you know, back, I, I've coached guys in junior that had 50 fights. Darren Kramer had 50 some odd fights in junior and got drafted. And at the end of the day, uh, it was his ticket to the National Hockey League. Today, you don't see that in junior hockey. You don't see guys without me because of the rules that are in place. But, you know, I just looked at the other day in Anaheim, they had a situation there and uh, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a sad situation, but it's, it's the reality right now of right. Uh, what's going on. So two quick questions to uh, sort of finish up the playing career that, that I have questions I have, Andrew, mm -hmm. you may have more, and then I want to get to some coaching stuff. So uh, the 87-88, which you just mentioned here, uh, it was a strong year for you. You got 20 games in with Philadelphia, but you also at Hershey. Uh, you guys win the, uh, the Calder Cup. Um, what was that like? By the way, they went undefeated in the, in the uh, playoffs, by the way. Um, but, Sweet. Wow. but most importantly, you're under coach John Paddock, who I, I have a lot of respect for in the game. And I was kind of wondering, what was your experience with him as a coach? Oh, John was awesome. Still good friends with John today. He's in Regina, the Western Hockey League. He's the uh, general manager there. He may be the president uh, and was coaching and kind of stepped aside the last couple of years. Actually, uh, is back behind the bench, I believe, this year. Um, but anyways, uh, John was a real players coach. You know, he wasn't, uh, he was demanding in a lot of areas, but he was uh, really good with the players as far as connecting and understanding uh, people. Um, we had a phenomenal team in, uh, in a, not just the year we won the Collar Cup, because there was other years we went to the finals and ended up losing. But that year that we uh, swept the playoffs, we had three rounds of the playoffs, went four straight in each round. And... Uh, that, that year was really special because it was the 50th year of the anniversary, a 50th anniversary year of the Hershey Bears. We won over 50 games that year and won the Calder Cup, swept through. And I believe it's a record. I don't know if it, uh, any other team has ever done that in the American Hockey League history, but my ring says 12 and 0. And uh, I attribute that not just to John, who was an excellent coach and really mentored the way we had to play. But we had really skilled team. We had a really tough team. And we had all the parts, great goaltending. So Wendell Young was our goalie. He's the general manager with the Chicago Wolves today in the American Hockey League. And um, our, our four lines were well-rounded. Well we had uh, four or five young guys that were rookies that year that stepped off of that team up to the Flyers the following year. One was Jeff Chikrin. Another was Nick Kiprios, a guy named Gordy Murphy, a defenseman. But all these young guys are big contributors in our win, our color cup. So you uh, spend the last four years of the season over in Austria, and I believe that's due to a, a, a really tricky neck injury you had, which kind of forced you away from the uh, 
uh, tough guy role, correct me if I'm wrong. So uh, going over to Austria was a good move for you, which by the way, you tore it up with in some insane uh, stats over there. My question is, is when did the coaching thing start to come into your mind? And now that you actually got some international play four years over there in Europe, did that kind of help you with your coaching? Because all of a sudden the nineties, right? The NHL's in just, just uh, inundated with European players. That's a great question. I'm surprised you even knew about my neck injury. Um, I had a year or two left on my contract in uh, 90 with the Flyers. Um, that season, I had herniated a disc in my neck and I had um, severe problems with my neck. I had uh, both hands were numb. Um, they did an MRI on my neck and found that uh, the disc was driven right into my spinal cord. So it was bowing my spinal cord. So the uh, end result was uh, the doctors told me to retire from hockey. And uh, it, was a, it was a huge blow for me because uh, I was too young. I was 30 years old and I felt like I still had some good years of hockey left. So uh, under the advice of the doctor, I seeked out uh, other uh, opinions and uh, I went to four other doctors. Three of them told me that there was nothing they could do. And the, I'm talking about neck surgeons and, and back surgeons. There was nothing they could do that I should live with that, but be careful because, you know, if I got in a car accident and I had whiplash that I would be a, a paraplegic. Uh, that worried me. So when I heard that, the immediate response was, I have to get this fixed. I can't live like that. So I found a doctor in Philadelphia, a guy named uh, Dr. Frank Simeone, who to this day I've got the utmost respect for, but he uh, looked at my MRI and immediately uh, looked at me and said, I can fix this. And I said, uh, Doc, why do you feel you can fix this? Because I've had three other guys tell me that they can't do it. He says, uh, not only can I fix this, but you can go back to playing hockey. And I said to him right away, why are you saying that? And he says, because I fixed a, box, a boxer, uh, Marvis Fraser, who is Joe Fraser's son. He had the same injury and he went back to boxing. And that immediately um, sold me that he could do the job. So I had the surgery in Philadelphia, and after the surgery, uh, I went for a consultation with him uh, a couple months after, and he looked at the uh, results of the surgery and everything is healing real good. He says, I got no problem saying that you can go back to playing hockey. I'd just be a little concerned about the fighting part. So now I'm thinking, okay, well, that's my job here in Philadelphia. So I started to look for alternatives to play hockey and uh, I immediately thought of Europe and uh, I was being offered uh, jobs in Austria because of my family background being Austrian. My mother and father had immigrated over from uh, Europe, uh, from Austria after the war. And uh, I still had family uh, roots in Austria. So all the teams in Austria knew about me playing in the National Hockey League. So I was getting multiple offers. So when I got these offers, I went to uh, Bobby Clark, who was a GM at the time in Philly and uh, asked for permission to, uh, to leave. And he let me out of my contract and off I went to Europe and uh, got back to my old roots of being a scorer instead of a fighter. It was uh, actually a great experience, but that led me to coaching because my initial response when I went to Europe was I'm going over there with an open mind. I want to learn their game. I want to learn about their players and I want to learn the language and their cultures. 
And the four years that I was there, I played with Czechs and Russians and Austrians and Swiss players and Finns. And so I really got uh, a real good handle on, you know, the way they thought the game, the way they trained the game. I had four different coaches during my time there. I had a Czech coach. I had two Austrian coaches and I had a German coach. So at the end of the day, I got a, a wide variety of, uh, you know, the hockey world and, and uh, experiences which I think made me a better coach in the long run because I had a pretty good understanding of just the way they thought the game. Now you have a long tenure uh, with the WHL. And uh, let me ask you this question, because we've had on uh, uh, a few guys that were uh, uh, GMs. We've had on uh, Jeff Tui, who was, uh, you know, in the OHL uh, GM for a long time and Jimmy Thompson uh, and, and his team teaching junior hockey you're prepping them to be pros, but they're still kids. How seriously do you have to take that mindset of they're still growing up, but I have to do my job and try to turn them into pro level players. And how do you balance that responsibility? Cause it's different than being a coach, say in the, you know, ECHL or even AHL. Yeah, it's a big job. And I took it seriously because uh, I'll give examples. I went through that as a young guy. Um, I didn't play in the Western Hockey League until I was 18 because in those days you didn't get drafted uh, until you were 19 or 20. So our league was much older when I played. When I started coaching, we were, we were coaching 16-year-olds. And, um, you know, they, the NHL moved the draft down to 17, 18. So you wanted those players in earlier to start grooming them to become NHL players. And, you know, there was other reasons why they did that with college recruiting and, uh, and the battle to get guys, colleges are recruiting guys at 15, 16 years old. And so it's a really competitive world. But now you're, you've got all these uh, young guys on your team, 16 years old. Parents are dropping them off after training camp. And now you're sitting there uh, with 23 guys and they're your responsibility. And I took that job very seriously. It, uh, you know, as a young guy, uh, I, I don't forget those free moments that you have when you're a teenager. And uh, I always tried to keep my guys in line with their goal. And their goal when they left home was uh, hockey, was to make the National Hockey League. And I can't think of a, a junior that left home for other reasons other than become a hockey player. And the second part was their parents' schedule for them to get a good education. Um, so it was really... Um, and I took it seriously, like I said before, uh, of not letting my guys run astray. And sometimes you had to be a real, like a father. Uh, you know, when, you're, when your son uh, strays uh, getting in with the wrong crowd, you, you make sure that he understands that friends are uh, really important to him, picking good friends. I learned that from my mom and dad that, you know, the comment was, uh, you can go play junior hockey, but you make sure you pick your friends wisely. And if you uh, start uh, uh, bringing in bad grades, you can come home. So I had a mission when I was a young guy to go to school and get a good education and do well at hockey. But it's a commitment to the game and commitment to the school. And as a coach, I tried to do the same thing. And some, some kids, uh, they bucked the system. They broke rules. And, uh, you know, I think it's part of being a good father, a good parent, that you've got to set them straight with that. And sometimes it's called tough love. And we've all gone through that as young guys. And, um, 
I didn't turn a blind eye to that because I wanted my guys to be good citizens in the community, get a good education, should their junior career not pan out the way they wanted it to. Um, because my experience is in junior, not a lot of guys get to uh, move on to play in the National Hockey League. Probably 90% could be even higher than that. Don't get there. So what are you going to do when, when hockey's over is fall back in your education. And I never forgot that because, um, but my mission was to make good people and good hockey players. And that, that was called a commitment. And I kept the guys straight to that, the word commitment. So in trying to do homework uh, for this uh, show, I'm looking at Seattle when you take over, you start in your, your career, and I'm looking at trying to look up coaching staff, and I can't find it. It's just you. Were you the only coaching staff in Seattle at the beginning or what? You do your due diligence. You're unbelievable. That's true story. Wow. <clears> talk, <throat> about you talk about paying your dues. Yeah, and I, I, I thought the uh, website had it wrong well, when we saw that. Let's hear Interesting. it. Well, when I took the job in Seattle, I was just retired from playing in Europe. I was living uh, back in Pennsylvania. I was at a game in uh, a flyer game and I ran into Bob Clark and uh, I asked Bob, I said, Bobby, uh, if, if I was to get into coaching, I'd already had two years previous of assistant coaching uh, experience in, uh, in the American League with John Paddock with the Binghamton Rangers. So while I was playing in Austria, I get a call from John and John says, uh, Snack, I know you want to get into, uh, into coaching. Would you be interested to come in here as my second assistant, get some experience? And I'm there. So our seasons in Austria, uh, one was an Olympic year. We were done at the end of January. So I went right into Binghamton and uh, he had me doing video and pre-scout. I was going over to Utica to watch the night before games, come back with information presented to the team. And it was really good experience for me. But anyways, fast forward now, I'm in Philadelphia after my playing career, I run into Clarky and ask him, what's the best path for me to become a coach? Should, uh, should I be looking in the American League as an assistant or should I be looking in junior for a head coaching job? And he said to me right away, you know, just knowing you, the best path I think is you making your own decision standing behind a bench. And I know a spot that's available looking for a coach in junior, it's Seattle. So from that conversation, I called the owners in Seattle and uh, inquired about uh, a, an interview. And it was a brief conversation. About a week later, I get a call. I'm out in the golf course. I'm actually at a golf uh, alumni, Flyer alumni golf tournament in Philadelphia. And I, and I get summoned off the course that there's a call for me in the clubhouse. So I take the golf cart, make the phone call, call the guy back. And they're inviting me to uh, Seattle and they got a flight for me the next morning. So I get off the course. I race back to, uh, to uh, uh, Hershey where I was living and I jump on a red eye and get out to Seattle, do the interview. There was four guys at the interview. They end up giving me the job. Uh, so I moved my family out to Seattle. And when I get to Seattle, the owner or the president, Russ Williams, is taking me around the locker room. I walk in the locker room and there's a guy standing in the room. His name's Jim McTaggart. He was a defenseman who I played with, with the Billings Bighorns. And I haven't seen Jimmy in 20 years. I actually played with Jim with the Moncton Alpines, the uh, Edmonton Oilers farm team for a year. So it's been since the early 80s, since I've seen Jimmy, it's been I, 10, 12 years maybe. And I look at him and go, Jimmy McTaggart, what are you doing here? He goes, I'm, I'm a part-time assistant coach here. I live here. And we hit it off. We hit it off. 
So Jimmy helped during uh, games at home, didn't go on the road with us and practices while we're at home. So he was a huge help my first year, but basically he had another job outside of hockey, just showed up for practices and, you know, worked with our defensemen. When I was on the road, I ran the bench by myself and I had a really good relationship with my older defenseman. One was a guy named Darren Quint. And I said to Q, uh, I said, listen, while I'm running the D's or forwards over here, you got to throw the guys on the ice that you feel are ready for that situation. So you get to change the D's. And that worked for about a game because every time I looked out there, Darren Quint was on the ice. So I had to go down and change that. <laughs> but I ran the forwards, he ran the D and um, you know what? I got a guy named Chris Herberger back that year. And this is a good story. Uh, I, I started that year one and 11 and we were trying to change the culture. We were playing uh, younger guys. We were trying to get our older guys uh, on board with the structure and just the discipline on and off the ice. I was sitting older guys out, but the culture was starting to come, but we were losing. And uh, I get called into the office by the president. And I'm thinking, I said to my wife, I think I'm getting fired. <laughs> Probably be moving. And the, and the president, Russ Williams, looks, at, looks me in the eye and says, you know what, Snack, you're doing a hell of a job. And my jaw dropped. And he says, I want to I wanna rip up your contract and make up a new one. I want to give you another year and give you a bit more money. And I said, really? And he says, <laughs> yep. But he showed so much confidence in what I was doing that we end up winning 42 games that year. And I got coach of the year, but the rest of the way we went uh, 41 and 10. And I ended up getting, uh, after that conversation, I ended up getting coach of the year that year, but he was a guy that instilled a lot of confidence in the people around him. And I, I tell you what, he could have ended my uh, coaching career, uh, 11, 12 games into it in that meeting. And yet he stuck by me and I never forgot that. Well, you have such a, a legendary coaching career in that WHL. I do want to, uh, before we start to lose track of, of time, I do want to mention, we mentioned this off air, uh, one of your former players and someone that worked with you, uh, Scott Burt, Scott Birdie. Uh, we just had him on the show. He was mentioning good things about you being a great mentor. Um, we want to throw him a little bit of love because uh, we didn't talk to him about this, but he's just tearing it up with Rapid City, and he may end up being not the jinx it coach of the year here in the East Coast League. Uh, what do you? What are some of your thoughts of uh, Birdie? I'm not surprised you just said that about Birdie. Quality, quality guy. Love him to death. You know, I coached Scotty in uh, Seattle my first couple of years. Um, he was a 16-year-old playing in Prince George Spruce Kings in the BC Junior. Prince George is my hometown. All my uh, family was still up in Prince George. My wife's from Prince George. And I had a, a soft uh, thing in my heart for guys from that northern British Columbia area. Just knowing the background, they, they, they battle hard, they compete hard. It's not an easy environment, but they've got a real good upbringing about the, the people side of them. So I made some calls on Birdie. We end up bringing him in and he became a real good player for us. Um, next thing you know, you know, my, my path moves on a different direction. He moves on to pro hockey. I think he got traded in Seattle um, to Edmonton and time was lost. I haven't seen him in years. 
but I did follow his career. He went on the East Coast League and uh, played in Idaho, won championships, went up to Alaska and won championships. So we kept in contact through the odd text. And uh, when I was looking for an assistant coach in uh, Spokane, um, John Clem had left. He was the assistant. And uh, we had an open spot. And I was getting all these resumes. And I get a call from Bertie. And I convinced uh, our general manager, Tim Speltz, to give him, a, give him a, a, an interview. And he was excellent. You know, he learned a lot uh, coming out of the East Coast League. He had to learn about, um, you know, booking hotels and booking buses and, and meals and just a lot of things that aren't coaching. They're more on the hockey ops side, but he did it all. And uh, got to the rink early, never had to ask him twice to do things, but he was really loyal to me and uh, did a great job for me. And I'm not surprised he was a sponge, took in a lot, whether it was motivating players, whether it was teaching D or teaching forwards. So he was prepared for the moment and uh, I'm real happy for him that he's uh, doing real well. And, in uh, Rapid City. Let me ask you some coaching questions as we start to wrap this up. Um, so Stockton, where you're at right now, uh, I, I think they're breaking records again. Like we talked with Birdie, he's having a season uh, of seasons for himself. I don't want to jinx anything, but Stockton's really on fire right now. How do you, as assistant coach, how do you deal with the AHL? It's a, it's a hard league because you have guys that are being sent down that think they they should be one-way players in there too. You guys have guys coming up from the East Coast League to fill in some stuff. So they're just appreciative to say they can play a game and they dress for the AHL. How do you deal with the personalities of all of these players, whether they think they're, I don't want to say prima donna, but you know what I'm saying, to guys that are appreciative for an opportunity. And then you got guys coming from all over the world now. How do you balance that? dealing with these players? Boy, that's a great question. You know, I went through it as a player. Um, you know, when you get sent down in a national hockey league training camp, it's a real blow to your ego, but it's how long it takes you to recover from that because ultimately it's the game that you're presenting today that gets you called up. In other words, if you're a high end prospect and you're not playing well, you're missing the boat. You, you've got to play well in the moment and I give, uh, give uh, Lover, who's our head coach, a lot of credit for, you know, keeping the guys here in Stockton on even keel. Um, because at the end of the day, we found, a, 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 I would say, a, a path or a game that is exactly like Calgary's. We play hard, we play structured, and the guys play with their roles and play within themselves. And on top of that, we've got real good leaders to hold the glue together in our locker room. And having been in Hershey and been the captain there, I know about leadership that it's not just one guy. Like I look at my Calder Cup team or our Calder Cup team in 88. You know, I wore the C. I got called up to Philly and I was up there for months. And in that time, Dave Fenvis wore the C. And when I came back to Hershey, you know, there's a conversation about, should I get it back? And I, I put my hand up and said, Fenner's the guy. He's worn it all this time while I've been gone. He keeps it. I don't even need a letter. They put a letter on me. But in that on that team, I, I could honestly say we could have 10 guys that wore that, uh, that could have wore the, worn the seat. So we have that in our locker room here. But, you know, uh, the ego part is really hard because you see guys get called up and other guys left behind. But the players in our team, 
they, they uh, have really done a good job of presenting themselves as guys that could get called up. Calgary hasn't had a lot of injuries uh, this year. And just recently, we've seen a, a rash of injuries on their team and our guys getting called up. So we've got a really tough schedule ahead of us, two games against Ontario, then we're in Henderson for a few games. Uh, and these are, uh, with 10 games left, going to be real tough times for our team. So we're going to find out, you know, um, the depth of our team is really important. And our guys that were on third and fourth line roles are sitting out, are coming into the lineup, and we're bringing up guys from the East Coast League. They're going to have to, you know, hold the, hold the team together. But I, I think it's the leadership on our team has been really strong and integrate these players and the coach has done a tremendous job of uh, keeping the guys on on par with what they have to do to get be successful for the next level. Is there a difference when you are with the LA Kings? Is there a difference when you're putting together the the D team or whatever, and you're going over strategy or you're telling them what to do, and now you have to do that at the AHL? Is there any different? I would assume maybe skill wise it might just be a little bit, but is there a big difference between you're at the top? of the you know your playing career you're in the nhl execute this compared to the ahl where you can probably say execute it but there still might be some teaching involved yeah i, I think there's a, we're a little bit more patient here with uh little things like a mistake in, in the national hockey league if you have a turnover or a giveaway in a critical area of the ice it's usually going to go into your net or it's going back in your end for huge chances against that happens in the American Hockey League and you try to be really patient with players, but at the end of the day, it's all about earning it. And, um, you know, I think Calgary's done a really good job with their young guys. I know we're really instilling it in our young guys that they play well, they play more. And uh, if they, if they don't um, uh, play real well, they may slide down the ladder, but we still allow our guys the freedom to make plays and still make give our guys the freedom to make mistakes and our guys are comfortable with that. But I think just the word accountability, our guys know that when they go up to Calgary, there's going to be the word accountability. And we try to do, we try to emulate that here in uh, Stockton. And I think the 11 losses we had this year, uh, out of those 11 losses, we may have played poorly in four or five of those games and deserved to lose. And the other games um, we probably played well enough to win and it's been, it's been that way all year long. Now, I will say in some of those 41 wins, there's games that we weren't very good and probably shouldn't have won, but our goalie was outstanding. And we've always found ways where our key guys have stepped up in those moments. And really, that's the sign of a good team. I think uh, it goes no farther than your leaders on your team. The last coach question I'll ask is this, and you, I think you kind of answered it when you're talking about giving the players a little bit of freedom, but it seems to me as the uh, couch GM here, as we watch TV on the couch, uh, you've got iPads, you've got video review. It seems like every, you know, you've got 14 million video coaches. It's, they're looking at their iPads after their shift. Is it become that, uh, are we starting to overcoach in the NHL, the AHL? Are you finding it a little bit like, immediate feedback from the players if I was a player I would assume I'd be like geez I can't even do anything without being told what I did wrong what I need to do maybe I'm wrong but it just seems like you know unless you score a highlight goal I wouldn't want to see that iPad yeah. right after my shift but it, right. is it is it a bit over uh, over coached and uh, and you got to get back to uh, 
players that have hockey sense. Well, let's remember now, and I'm going to give a guy a huge plug here, uh, Dr. John Hammermeister, who's at Eastern Washington University in Cheney, in, uh, just outside of Spokane. He uh, is a sports psychologist for, I believe, 18 NCAA basketball teams. Gonzaga is one of them. And uh, he's worked uh, with the Pittsburgh Pirates as their uh, uh, sport uh, psychologist or sport coach. He uh, invited me into his master's uh, classroom to watch, I want to say, 20 master's students while he taught a class. And he came and he told me to come in and observe today's uh, people or students. So I sat in the back for an hour and I watched him do a presentation. He spoke. He did a PowerPoint presentation. He spoke some more. And then at the end of the class, he asked me to go for coffee. And during that time, he asked me, so during my class, what did you observe? And I said to him, well, I watched all your students while you talk, look down at their phones and totally ignore you. They were playing <laughs> on their phones. And the minute you put up uh, your PowerPoint presentation or your video, the eyes came off the phone and they were really attentive. He goes, that's today's world. It's visual with young kids. So when you ask about iPads, in my era as a player, we never had that. It was memory recall. We didn't have Xboxes and games. We played out in the street. We learned our skills playing road hockey. It's different today. So the iPads, um, when the players want to see what happened, I had to be, as a player, more in tune with the assistant coach or head coach verbally he would explain it to me and I may have had an argument. It didn't happen that way. And then you go back and watch the video and you go, oh. So in the heat of the moment, the player doesn't always see what's going on in the correct manner. The iPad confirms what the coaches are saying that your positioning is a little off or you could have had a stick on a puck here because as I said, in the heat of the moment, the players actually think they're doing something when in fact they're doing something different. So it, it really, it's a good teaching tool today because uh, number one, players are visual. And at the end of the day, it shows the truth. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, I've no, never is, thought of that. Smart. Uh, so we're going to finish up with uh, some lightning round questions. Uh, you may have just a name that pops in your head. If you've got a short story, that's great. Uh, but we're just going to ask some questions and hopefully uh, kind of make you go, oh, boy, let me think a minute. Before I do this, though, I'm assuming, and I shouldn't, but I'm going to do this, Andrew, assuming the nickname Snack is from Snack Bar because people used to mispronounce your last name. Is that right? Or did you Man, just do a lot of stuff? <laughs> yes, you're unreal. You are good. So it started off in junior where my head coach, Dave King, when he got mad at me, the real pronunciation of my name is in Austrian is Nachbauer. It became Nachbauer in Canada. And that's what everybody called me. And it became Nachbar. So my junior coach, when he got mad at me, yell out, come on, snack bar. And the players caught on to that and they just shortened it to snack. So it, it, Kinger started that and it stuck with me my whole life to the point where even my son's called snack and or little snack, but at the end of the day, that's where we began. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. great. Okay. Here we go. Uh, can I start? Go ahead. All right. This has got to be because um, you've had so many good bouts. 
Who is the toughest guy that you had to drop the gloves with in the NHL? And I want to know the AHL too. Bob Probert, Chris Nyland, uh, Al Secord. Uh, the, you know what? The list goes on and on. And I, I, there was guys in there that were smaller guys that were tough pound for pound. Um, but those are the guys that come to mind for sure. Which, and, and this could be going back to AHL, WHL, NHL, but which arena had the worst ice conditions? Oh, yeah. Oh, probably have to go down into the south for that one. Um, you know what? I, when I played, I don't believe the ice was as bad as it is today with, with the, some of the buildings, the upkeep. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, it was so long ago I played, I couldn't even tell you the answer to that question. Yeah. I, I w- walking across the ice surfaces today they're you know the buildings are so hot they're so big and uh they're the upkeep it's let's put it this way the canadian cities have the best ice the edmonton, edmonton north lance coliseum was the best uh philly was just okay but i go to the canadian cities they had great ice how was la's at least as a coach uh, it can be, was it- la can be choppy it can be you know one thing as a coach in the National Hockey League, I realized when you wanted to make passes, how often passes exploded off player sticks. And that was because pucks were skimming over the top and hitting uh, ruts. Yeah. Whereas, uh, for instance, in Edmonton, uh, that ice was like just clear and, and smooth. Um, did not a lot of snow buildup. And, and the U.S. cities, L.A. in particular, it can get tough. It can get rough. It can get chewed up, which uh, tends to bring down that skill game at times. Who is the toughest defenseman? And I'm not talking uh, fighting in this well, case. I'm talking about who is the defenseman that, man, you just couldn't move in front of the net. He was so strong. Well, I'll bring up a name that um, I, when I jumped on the ice surface, I made sure I knew he was out there, Scott Stevens. Yeah. And I fought him uh, once and, if you fell asleep when he was on the ice and you came through the middle as a center, your career could end. So you were highly aware of his presence because he was a devastating body checker. And uh, I wouldn't say he was out looking for a fight, but he played the game hard because of his, uh, you know, his mentality of competing. He was going to stiffen you up if you uh, came across that line and his partner you know, whether it was Danico or whether it was Hatcher or whoever he played uh, would bring bring that player across the middle. And I think Eric Lindros ran into him a couple times. Yeah. But he's one guy that comes to mind for me. Which arena had the worst locker rooms? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, in Chicago Stadium, you had to go downstairs, right? So, yeah, yeah there, uh, Boston was small, the gardens. Uh, those are ones that stick out. The the ones that you really remember are those, like for me, it was the Montreal Forum, Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. You went into those buildings, your jaw just dropped because of the banners hanging up there. I knew every player up there. I grew up watching them and it's like, wow, I'm here. So it felt like you're in the hockey mecca going into those buildings. What is the most embarrassing or craziest thing to happen to you during a game or warm up besides the Philadelphia incident? Yeah. <laughs> Awesome question. Um, yeah, I, I remember it. I got a penalty in the Montreal Forum. It was Saturday night. It was uh, Hockey Night in Canada. I knew everybody at home would be watching. 
I came out of the penalty box. I was playing for Hartford and Mark Howe fed me a breakaway pass there. And I was literally at their blue line and their D were at our blue line. So I had a two line uh, breakaway. And when the minute it hit my tape, I took one stride and went down. I jumped to my feet, went, took another stride, went down, got up, went to shoot the puck, got stick checked from a guy from behind. I couldn't believe that it fell down twice. Now, I think when I came out of the pelly box, I had a gum wrapper stuck to the blade of my skate. Makes sense. I don't know. He says he <laughs> stepped on, he said he stepped on a stick. Right. Now he's right. saying it was a yeah. bubble gum. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I, I want to say my knees were shaking so bad going in on that break when I went down. <laughs> Andrew, last one. <clears throat> um, well, you could do the last one, but one more that I had to ask, excluding Chris Nyland, who was the biggest rat? to you personally who and, oh, and yeah. not maybe somebody that would nylon would always fight but was there a rat that would just spear you cross check you but wouldn't fight who got under your skin well I, you know what I'll, I'll go outside the nhl and talk about the american league there's a guy named jimmy hofford who played for the rochester americans uh he played he played a little bit like scott stevens you know where he he liked the big hit and uh, he's a guy that uh, submarine players, he, he wanted the low hip checks right into the knees. And I remember uh, an incident where I was coming through the middle of the ice and I knew he was in front of me. I put a puck behind him. And as I was skating around him to get to retrieve the puck, he submarine me. So he went right at my knees and I did an absolute cartwheel, landed on my back. And as I landed on my back, off came the gloves. So it was an immediate snappage in my brain. And I went after him. And he's the kind of guy that sometimes he'd fight you, other times he'd turtle. But he, on a nightly basis, was a guy that irritated me. And I had no problems going after each night to, to settle the score. But there was... That was his role. He did it well. And no hard feelings. Uh, he was a real competitor. But for sure, he's one of those guys. And, you know, there was a lot of guys in the American League that uh, and the National Hockey League, their job was to be an irritated, irritating type player, uh, uh, agitator. And, um, but in the National Hockey League, I think every team had much. Y'all had guys, you know, in, in that series. Uh, Lemieux was one. Uh, wasn't well liked by any of the guys in our team. And you'd have no problems going after that guy. Yeah. Well, Coach, we can't thank you enough for coming on. Uh, I know we're over time. We're so appreciative of the time you gave us. Uh, we'd love to have you on maybe in an off season. We don't want to bother you anymore during the season, but boy, you're a guy that just has so many stories. You're, you, you networked into everybody in hockey. Uh, we have uh, enjoyed our time. We tried to do our homework, so hopefully it wasn't too boring for you. Yeah. Thanks a lot, guys. You appreciate it. And I, I want to just say something to all the tough guys that uh, are out there that I forgot because there's a lot. One guy got a lot of respect for was Val James, played in uh, Rochester, had a couple get-tos with him, but utmost respect for that man. And there's a lot of guys I forgot. I apologize to those guys, but it was a tough job in those days. And uh, a lot of respect goes amongst that fraternity. Uh, because at the end of the day, they're all good guys. And uh, all the hockey players that I've played with, they all had the same goals in mind. It was to win, and that's what it was all about. Perfect. Well, hang on one sec. We'll say goodbye off air, and I'll stop recording. Man, snack bar. Hey, 
You got the old guys back on for you, Dad. You got to like these episodes, well, be, right? Yeah, be careful saying old guys. Some well, of them, some yeah. of them, you know. But well, yeah, sometimes you know, um, Ed, I remember him well. Uh, I, you have to have him on again, but of course, we're not going to bother the guy during. Like I said, Stockton's really making a, a run for it. I think they're, I think they had like, like a, a season winning, like the most wins in the, like they broke their own. Yeah, Stockton team record, right so now. they're doing really, really well. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. Old old guy hockey, like you said, and uh, I remember him fighting, and I remember him scoring goals with Philadelphia. I don't really remember him in Hartford, but then again, if he was early on in Hartford days. I might have been myself uh, like thirteen, maybe I didn't remember, right. but I certainly remember him on the Flyers. Yeah, and in Hershey. Well, you know me; I always enjoy the old tough guy stories as well, and. You know, it's always cool to always have a coach on there, too, and to have, like, the player and coach perspective from somebody. And I think that uh, it's very interesting, but also it reminds us as couch potatoes, especially me, who has never played. My dad at least played hockey most of his life. And, uh, you know, some of the things he was talking about, even off air, the communication, things that he teaches starting right. at WHL. Right. You don't know that stuff unless you played the game, unless you played even professionally, have played your whole life. And that's stuff where, as a couch potato for me, yeah, I'm going to shut up. I'm going to shut up next time I post something on Twitter. So it's like, yeah, I can't be telling these guys what to do. <laughs> yeah, but if it's not for the – they'll tell you to. If it's not for the fans, they wouldn't have a job. So they, they, they know True. that. They take it in stride. But anyway, um, great guest. Really enjoyed it. And uh, we got to have him back on because I, I had so many questions and we ran over it. He was gracious enough to, you know, keep, going, keep on yeah. talking. But uh, we, we'll have to have him back on in the future. Great stories, and uh, we will catch everyone later. We have guests coming up over the next few weeks. Yep. Uh, we won't announce who they are. Uh, one, we have to solidify. Yes. Uh, a GM. Yep. And, uh, and we've got uh, another great player coming on after that, yep. and we keep adding them. Yes. And we might have to uh, rely on our good friend Dave Capuano because Bruins are going into playoffs. We need his insight. And, you know, like – just like to say, he called it the last year. Who he was going to win? I think I'm going to put some money on whatever Dave says this year. Yeah, you may have to. So we'll listen to us on all the podcasts. We're yes. everywhere. We're appreciative of, of our listeners, and hopefully, we uh, you enjoyed us bringing you some in depth stories from all these player and coaches' careers. Yes, thank you for joining us today.